Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Today, Sheila Warren and I are going to be exploring the ever-evolving world of, of staking. And we have a, a great guest from Coindesk who's going to join us in a little while to deal with this. And Ethereum is the, I suppose, the peg that we're using to look at this because there's an upgrade coming up that is going to unlock uh, locked staked ETH tokens which has implications, I think, for the sort of investing environment. But there's also been some developments around staking with regards to regulation, given the actions that the SEC took against Kraken. And in my view, this is all like, you know, building into something that could really lead to uh, a different environment for investing across the crypto ecosystem broadly. Uh, Sheila, yeah, I mean, we're talking about the Shanghai upgrade coming up. Um, yeah. What do you know about it? Uh, well, well, okay. So first of all, I, I've i understood it's the Chappella upgrade, but I could oh. be wrong. So I'm going to look to our guests to be uh, like, maybe, I'm, maybe, I'm, the Shanghai. maybe, so maybe I'm wrong here. That well, I Googled it and I was like, oh, I guess maybe it is a Shanghai upgrade now. Maybe I missed the memo. Well, like well Margo, I'm, I'm sure will set, set the record straight know. on She'll this. Yes. Yeah. I'm excited uh, to have a, tech, a more technical focused episode because, and I do think to your point, you know, where the most innovative technology right now or the new things that are happening is actually really meeting policy is at staking right now. And mm-hmm. so it's going to be really interesting to think about how does Chappella slash Shanghai, how does this upgrade? What's it? Well, first of all, what's it for? Unpacking that, what does it mean? Why is it important? I think that's uh, really interesting. But then what does it mean in terms of, uh, I would say, a more democratized access to staking, which I think is really important because, you know, the, well, some of the accusations lobbed against Ethereum are because of high gas prices. And it's kind of like, wealthy people's token, you know, so 
these EIPs are designed to help address some of those concerns. And is that actually happening? Is that legitimate? I mean, I'm really looking forward to hearing I what Mark so. has to say. I mean, yeah, yeah. lovely to see if it can truly get to this decentralized structure. I thought that the Kraken action was could go either way, right? Because here's the SEC stepping in, telling Kraken that it can no longer offer staking of a service. And you could argue, well, that's that's great because that's a that's you know, if you believe in a more decentralized structure, that's removing this centralized player from the process. Um uh, you know, because by the SEC's uh, reckoning, it was offering, you know, the product it was offering was essentially uh, an unregistered security. But I think we have to see where the rest of SEC actions go, because everything else yeah. that the SEC is doing is it, trying to protect, you know, trying to keep small investors out of this world, leaning towards thinking about Ethereum as n- not actually a commodity, actually it being a security. And therefore, yeah. the idea that this is going to be the domain of these institutions that offer up this service largely, you know, like a BlackRock or anybody else or a Fidelity, as if it's a fixed income product and that that layer of the crypto ecosystem may not actually have, at least in the United States, a lot of individuals participating in it, but it could go the other way. And we'll, we'll sort of see what Margot has to say. Yeah. Well, I think the one thing we can say, and then I, let's bring in Margot, is about the SEC is that, you know, it's very tough to extrapolate or pattern match here. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. you know, one SEC enforcement action is, as they say, one SEC enforcement action, right? And so right. I think we can expect to see more of those. That seems pretty cool. I think the one thing we do know is we can expect to see more of these. But what will be next and where will, will it come? And will it pattern match or will it be something just out of left field? It's just, it's just, very Just, just brutally <laughs> capricious for the sake of it, right? Like it's just it, that, that there the strong it man, it's the strong man in, in the uh, prison yard who's just like, I'm just going to randomly beat up this person to show that I can, you know? <laughs> there it is, there that's it is, yeah. Okay, so, you know, and that's it. It's that's really that way. Power. All right, but uh, let's let's get Margot in. Margot, good to have you. Margot Nykirk, who is Coindesk's Ethereum protocol reporter, uh, covers a bunch of stuff for us. So glad to have you because you've been doing a lot of coverage of this Shanghai slash Chappella upgrade. <laughs> yeah, which is it? Um, First question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, oh. look, and, and, you know, you've got Sheila as the regulatory expert, so she'll come with that. We're going to get you right now to just talk through a little bit about what this thing is technically all about. Like, what is this upgrade going to do? Yeah. Well, first, thanks for having me. Yes, it actually is technically called Chappella. That's because, ah. um, <laughs> yeah. but you know, Sh- Shanghai is sort of stuck around, so people will understand what you mean. When it's technically not false to call it Shanghai. There's two okay. upgrades happening at the same time: one to the consensus layer and one to the execution layer. One of them is called Shanghai, and the other one is called Capella. And so that's why merging of the Capella. two names Capella. is Chappella. Yeah. <laughs> I see. Okay, got it. <laughs> So this is sort of rounding out this chapter of Ethereum from when it's moved from proof of work to proof of stake. And I think we should go back a little bit in Ethereum history just to to clarify what all this is. So in September, there was this big event called the merge. Ethereum was operating under proof of work where it was using miners to add uh, blocks to the blockchain. And it changed that out to a system called proof of stake where they would use validators. And in order to participate in the block validation process, you need to stake 32 ETH as part of that. And so in that mechanism, when you participate by adding blocks, you're rewarded some amount of ETH as well. That's all been locked up. And this big upgrade will finally unleash all that accrued staked ETH. That's why it's like such a big deal uh, for this moment, because it's sort of closing out one chapter of Ethereum and also opening up a new chapter where Ethereum can tackle some of these bigger issues around scalability and gas prices and transaction fees and things like that. Let's unpack that for one second. So what really got a lot of attention was the fact that the transition from proof of work to proof of stake, which the merge affected back in September, reduced energy consumption by 99.9%, mm-hmm. right? So 
that got a lot of very understandably for very good reasons, press and attention uh, for the environmental implications. However, what it also did was lock up a lot of value on chain that has not been able to be unlocked. And so what does that mean? That means that the price to engage, if you will, became kind of like a uh, you had to have a bunch of ETH and you had to have like a, a quite a significant value, although that value fluctuated a bit over time in order mm-hmm. to even engage in a transaction. And that, of mm-hmm. course, has been problematic from September until when all this all goes through because not everyone could afford to do that. And so the idea that Ethereum, while it became significantly less energy intensive, you look at like an ESG frame, right? On the ETH side, massive improvements on the kind of maybe we'll say S side, maybe not so much, not such a positive change because the ability to interact on chain was actually somewhat limited to, you know, pre-wealthy individuals who already had a significant amount of ease. And so now what I'm hearing you say is that part of the goal of these two different upgrades is to redress that kind of, if you want to call it like S kind of component and to go back to a much more democratic system where you don't have to have that kind of position, market position in order to be able to kind of engage on chain. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. I think that this is going to, I mean, there's a whole bunch of predictions or questions out there rather about what this will all do. And we can get into that also when we talk about staking services. But I think, you know, more on the human level side too, there's been a lot of bankruptcies happening lately. A lot of customers have had their funds locked up in, in various exchanges. And so that sentiment and that anxiety, that sort of has persisted in the markets has also translated onto the protocol level, right? Where, where people who've been staking for so long since December of 2020 have not had access to their funds. And so this will also um, like bring in a new era where, okay, I can have access or I can access my rewards and I can choose if I want to participate or remove myself from, from participating in the block validation process. So yeah, there's a whole bunch of new opportunities and, and questions that are going to come out the, of this. That market component to it, I think is really interesting, right? Because we do know that there was people created these tokenized versions of locked ETH that you could sell, right? When they were really going through the worst moment of the liquidity crunch and there was all those contagion fears, there, there were people that I think there was sort of selling those tokenized ETH and that was getting discounted, which was then creating these bigger concerns about arbitrage, but also the loss of you know any faith in what the system was going to be. It's good to see that I think it's probably washed itself out. But yeah, whenever you have an underlying asset that is supposed to be worth X, but it doesn't have the same liquidity qualities of, of that, these moments of stress emerge or opportunity, right? It can be either one. So I suppose people are also concerned, are they not, that all of this unlocked ETH could just kind of flood onto the market, that people might just sort of start dumping it and that that could have a downward pressure on things. I would leave that more to the question to my sure. markets colleagues, because I, I, I sort of cover more of the tech aspects. But from what I've read from their coverage is that there are a lot of questions about whether this will encourage more staking and liquid staking, as well as is there going to be some kind of sell pressure. Calling all early stage crypto blockchain and Web3 startups, teams and builders. Apply to Coindesk PitchFest, powered by Google Cloud, and pitch live on stage at Consensus in Austin this April. Winners will receive two VIP Piranha Passes to Consensus 2024, featured coverage on Coindesk, and an invitation to present at Coindesk's Private Investor Summit, Ideas 2023. Learn more and apply at consensus.coindesk.com slash pitchfest. So, so here's a question. Like a lot of people are, you know, well, if this is a decentralized you know, situation, then how do people make decisions about whether or not to do an upgrade in the first place? And how did Shanghai and 
Capella, Capella, right? Shanghai and Chappella, Chappella, you know, how did these things come forward? And so maybe just talk people through a little bit, like how an EIP, like how all that works and how these decisions are made about which upgrades to do and how and why and maybe when. I think that'd be interesting. Yeah. So the main EIP that's part of the Shanghai upgrade is EIP 4895, which is the release of staked Ether. And so what happens is that these developers, they meet I believe it's once every two weeks at what they're now calling their execution layer meeting. It used to be called their all core devs meeting. They run through sort of the code changes and what needs to be done in order to make sure that this this works. And so they decided, I think back in December, it was solidified, or maybe it was November. I need to go back and check my reporting that this is going to happen sometime in March. And by the way, this Shanghai upgrade is not just the release of staked ether. That's one EIP related to it. There are a bunch of smaller EIPs that will sort of help reduce gas prices, but that's like more developer focused and not really user focused. But yeah, this is this has been a long time coming and they've been running a bunch of tests to sort of ensure that this is all working smoothly. There was just a test that happened two days ago, a, mo- a Monday, to sort of ensure that a simulated state ETH version is working and that, that that reaches the mainnet blockchain that that will be enabled to. And so there's one more test left before this goes live in the blockchain. I suppose like it, maybe the, an EIP, right? It's an Ethereum improvement proposal, right? Yeah. Uh, so you know, maybe talk us through how that works. Like this thing gets proposed and then there's obviously some consideration by the community. How does that process work? Where it's, a, where it's essentially agreed upon that it's going to move forward, but then also how does that process of finding consensus, if you like, has that changed in a proof of stake environment versus the previous proof of work environment? I don't think it's changed. I actually, I I need to go back and make sure that I understand the exact ways in which it's proposed. But typically you write up a proposal and the core devs will vote on it. And then if it grabs enough attention, it'll make it to one of their meetings and then they'll continue discussing it on one of these GitHub, I believe it is. Mm -hmm. But the release of state ether has been part of the Ethereum roadmap for a while because it is really right. part of that proof of stake landscape. Right. And and they didn't want, like, there's a reason why they didn't want it to happen at the merge. They wanted to make sure that this big undertaking of changing from proof of work to proof of stake was going to happen smoothly. And then we'll work on the code to make sure that this works because that was already a big task in and of itself. So there's a reason for what, why it's now been six months apart. They wanted to make sure that proof of stake is functioning well. And, you know, Ethereum has not had any downtime, so that's been quite successful. But yeah, that sort of ends out, like closes up that process. Okay. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the success of it's really quite interesting. I think, does anybody, are most people confident that there'll be a similarly smooth process here? I think everyone thought the merge, you know, there was all sorts of debates about what would happen with that. And it really was sort of, it's at least in terms of the functioning of the blockchain itself, right? There's interesting questions about whether or not it led to more centralization or not. And that's a whole other conversation we could have. But the, set, the actual functionality seemed to be relatively smooth. Are there any concerns that this one could disrupt things, uh, you know, setting aside the market concerns more, more about the technicals? I don't think there's necessarily concerns around the technicals. I think where people may be a little bit concerned is around the, the timeline of this all. The merge has, like we've been saying, and crypto Twitter as a whole has been saying that the merge has been postponed for years and years and years. But the Ethereum developers will argue, well, we never set a date, so there's no postponement. Right now, you know, it's targeted, like Shanghai is targeted for March, and we're recording this in March, and we still don't have the exact date. There have been tests, there have been two tests that the Ethereum developers have run through to make sure that this has worked. There's one more test left, and the 
time between the two tests is usually about three weeks. So the next test should happen around March 20th, which means that if you put three weeks from that, that sort of gets to, that pushes it sort of into April. So there might be a delay. Obviously, the Ethereum developers won't say, no, there's no delay. We've never said that there's a set date. You know, they did give a March timeline and that now, might now be April. So I'm pretty confident in the technicalities around this. The first two tests have seemed to go very smoothly. You know, for people who are eager to unlock any of rewards or to remove themselves from the staking process, there might be a chance you might have to wait till April. It's so interesting. And so what I think is really interesting about what you just said is you know, kind of the balance, if you will, of, of power decision making does shift. Speaking very generally here, but how this this usually works is often you know, the, the core developers or the, the, the team here that's really responsible for making sure the safety and soundness of, you know, any L1 They'll come up with a proposal, in this case, it's called an EIP. The community, then, then it shifts. And the community basically, you know, sometimes they do technical analysis of that. You know, that's kind of all done in public. Sometimes they're more like, well, what's the point of this thing? And do we care about it in the first place? And how do we prioritize it and other things? You know, in this particular case, there was a widespread agreement that these things needed to happen. So there wasn't a lot of discussion about the substance of what was going to be accomplished by this. But there was some discussion, from what I understand, about the technical aspects of to some extent, which thing might go first or second, knowing that they all kind of had to happen, right? Which is, I think, a little bit why you wound up with the Chappella mashup, is what I understand. And so, but then once that decision has been, the community has basically given its approval, then it goes back to the developers. And so what's interesting about this is there's been approval by the community. The community basically said, yes, these things matter. You know, we think that the plan that has been developed is, you know, sound, et cetera. And then it's back to the developers to figure out, okay, now what do we, how do we implement this and what do we do now, right? Which is really interesting because that's where you get things like who is creating, is there accountability around things like timelines or whatever? Now, in some cases, the timeline is something that's going to be pretty invisible. It'll make the entire, you know, chain faster or smoother or whatever it is, right? But in some cases like this one, there's really a lot of real value locked up. And so the timing matters differently to people than other kinds of code changes might matter. And so this is a situation where there are a lot of eyes on this in a way, different kinds of with different kinds of pressure than there were around the merge because people are like, well, I can't engage the way that I've become accustomed to engaging until this happens. Therefore, it's a different kind of pressure and relationship. But the reality is that the community has kind of spoken and now the developers have to figure out when one hopes or when one assumes and there's evidence they're going to do it in a very safe and sound way. So in no way am I anyway casting aspersions. And if it is delayed, I think we can assume those are the reasons, right? Because there's just more testing or whatever is deemed necessary. But it is an interesting dynamic that I think a lot of people- Can really I, I just jump in, jump in there, Sheila? Because I just yeah. think, again, with, I mean, to bring it back to this sort of regulatory perspective, like one of the things that is the constant ongoing debate and causes much consternation in the community is that the most hardline regulators, at least in Washington, would seem to say all these things are securities, except for Bitcoin, apparently, uh, because even if you have these decentralized structures and all these sort of voting procedures and everything else, there's a developer community that have ultimately this power and they often sort of flow back to a founder that had some interest and so forth. Does this particular scenario where there is value associated with a decision that a group of developers have that could impact the value of the tokens held by the community complicate the argument at all? This is really a question for you, but I'd love to hear Margot weigh in as well. I'm not asking you to take a position here, Sheila, but like, is it the sort of thing <laughs> that you could imagine Gary Gensler jumping on and saying, you see, they've got this, there's that plank of the Howie test that says, dependent on the work of others, and these guys are the ones determining who's yeah. getting the value here. 
So here's the thing, right? To answer your latter question, which is a very specific question, you know, what would what would WWGGD, I suppose, like what would Gary Gensler do? I mean, like, as I said, <laughs> how the hell do I know? You know, but uh, what I will say is, yeah, I do think that he would at least attempt to make the case that ultimately, regardless of community engagement, there is a group of people that are qualified to develop the thing and therefore that, right? I, I think the very easy counter argument to make to that, frankly, uh, which is dependent to some extent on diversity and, and size of the community and the way the community is engaged. There are things that I do think are important facts. However, the reality is developers don't move without the community's engagement. And that is a critical distinction between developers just going out and doing a thing with no mm. you know, accountability. Right? It's, it, it's also different, in my view, from developers who might have ultimate accountability, like some shareholders or whatever. Right? That's a different model as well. This is a model where the community, the way the community engages is actually quite different. So that's why I think that that shift in, that I talked about just now mm. is actually really interesting because it's not obvious to people who don't understand how that works, like how mm. what the community engagement really means without that permission signaling. And, and again, I do think the variance in how this works at a, at a community engagement level, we're going to see that that's significant. I would argue that like on some level, it shouldn't really matter, but it's more about the size and diversity of the community. But regardless, I think it's going to start being a thing that we have to talk about a bit more, how that actually functions. Mm. Regardless, I think the thing is, like, the developers can't go until they get that signal from, you know, the, the giant community. And that is a critical distinction that I think certainly muddles how yeah. we, at a minimum, at a minimum. And to it, me, that seems like a very clear thing. But again, you know, WWGGD, if I knew <laughs> that, I would, you know, I, I, I would, uh, Set up my own betting pool, and I would, you know. Yeah, of course, right? of course. So, but it's yeah. an interesting. Yeah, one would hope that it will force that conversation, right? Like, okay, what does decentralization mean? What is it about the structures, the community involvement, these things? Because it is obviously materially different from a central, actually decentralized system. Other dis discussion about whether or not they literally have control; those things may or may not be provable. But you've certainly got a different model that I think needs yeah. to be recognized. On that note, then, Margot, like the other aspect about the decentralization here, of course, is like how widely spread is the staking activity? How widely held are those tokens? And the, the breadth of that, of course, does lead to a more democratic structure in, in that community engagement. What's the current thinking about how likely or otherwise it is to sort of build a broad-based individual participation? We know that when the merge happened, there was some concern that these sort of centralized pools, Coinbase was one of them, and suddenly we're accounting for so much of, of the staking and therefore essentially could have censorship control. The Kraken ruling, we're essentially removing one of those types of services from the process, uh, raises interesting questions. And, and yet, obviously, individuals, it's I think it's similar to any uh, like proof of work as well. Like, if you want to gain a more reliable source of income from your staking, pooling those resources is, is a better opportunity. But are there ways to do that and still maintain the sort of individual control, like these sort of peer-to-peer -peer structures? What are the options looking like for individuals to participate in, in this post-Shanghai environment? Yeah, I mean, the question around staking is sort of looming in the Ethereum ecosystem, especially around like individual stakers. I'd actually done some reporting with, with a colleague, uh, Sam Kessler, about what this all means. And surprisingly, when we spoke to developers and you know, representatives in that space that, who talked about decentralized staking uh, pools like, like a Lido or a Rocket Pool, there was like some silver linings around this. Just to like break it down from that, I think there are sort of three buckets in which our takeaways uh, uh, in terms of like what this means as an individual staker 
in this landscape can do is that, okay, so the three buckets are basically, what does it mean for centralized staking services? Are they going to come after Coinbase? Coinbase argues that their product is different and that they're ready to fight the SEC if they come after them. We'll see if that happens. That remains an unopen question. But some of these decentralized services like Elido, actually, they seemed optimistic when it came to this. The, you know, the to- Lido token actually dumped 10% following the news around this. And that's because it's run by smart contracts. It's only code. So instead of going to a centralized entity, that means that all these stakers might now jump to a decentralized entity and, and, and to participate in that. And who knows if the SEC is going to start to come after Elido. But that's also an unopening question. And then finally, I think when it comes to decentralization and on the protocol aspect, some of the developers I spoke to, they were optimistic w- with this ruling or with the settlement, I should say, because that meant that more stakers would basically come and be able to participate as a solo staker, which would make Ethereum more decentralized. And that's, you know, this ties back to, back into the merge, why Ethereum had moved from proof of work to proof of stake, because they thought that, or the developers and, and Vitalik, I should say, part of the roadmap thought that proof of stake is a more decentralized consensus model that would secure the network more. And so that means that more participants who are solo staking are going to be able to help in this process. Now, like Sheila had sort of mentioned, 32 ETH is a lot, a lot of money. Not everyone just mm. has that lying around. So, so that's some that's another problem that infrastructure providers, I should say, are sort of going to have to solve if staking as a service is completely banned. But I was quite surprised, honestly, to see developers optimistic about this shift maybe to solo staking. You know, so, so this is such an important point. I really think it merits a pause, right? So the so 32 ETH is currently along the lines of what, $50,000? Is that right? Yeah, uh, $50,000, right? Yeah, back of the envelope. Yep, that sounds good. Back of the envelope. Okay, so so the point, it's a lot of money. We're not talking, when we say a lot of money, we're not talking like $1,000. Talking like this is a significant amount of money. I think it, it merits a pause there because of course, what we talk about a lot in this space and a talking point for a lot of the industry is, you know, oh, we're opening up opportunities to all kinds of people to engage in different ways and, and wealth creation and financial inclusion, all these kinds of things. But if it takes $50,000 to engage, that that is not hmm, interesting, right? It, it's also a geographical or at least a developing right. development. Because right. in the United States, you could imagine, yeah, sure. If, if people have got their 401k, they've got some savings and they yeah. can treat it you like- can make a those choices. Thing. It's a, it's a bond investment, right? I, I can put yeah. it in a bond or I can put $50,000 to a staking pool. I'm essentially getting fixed yeah. income. It's an investment. But yes, if you're talking about from you're from Botswana or somebody, this the number is, of people who can do that is quite different, right? Exactly yeah. right, right. So suddenly we're kind of we're relegating this to you know certain countries, we're relegating it to certain currencies, or it becomes challenging. And so part of what staking as a service provides, and it's it, here's the irony of it. On the one hand, you've got the WWGD, GGD, you know, kind of world in which it's like, well, that is a centralized action by a particular company or a group that has control over the offering of the service and this and that. You know, okay. Okay. (laughs) On the other hand, you've got, well, that's the way to democratize participation. And so you have to have somebody who is articulating what those rules of engagement might be and able to aggregate those 32, you know, collectively, mm. it, I think it comes down to what are the priorities that A, we have technically in the industry and the ecosystem, but also what are the regulatory priorities, which again, going back to our framework, I don't know that anyone is clear on what the SEC's it, current priorities really are. It might not matter though, like, and I don't want to just diminish the significance of what you're saying, because it, it, it clearly that is a large amount of money and that's important. But as I said, like, 
in the United States, it will exclude people in the United States, without a doubt. I, I'm not naive to the fact that $50,000 is a lot of money for everybody. But on the other hand, there is a relatively large pool of Americans with whom $50,000 of savings is something that they could contribute to this. The SEC's supposedly only US-focused mandate would, in theory, ensure that if you do have staking pools like Lido and others you could use, and you are in Botswana or in you know Vietnam or, or anywhere like that, that you're outside of the purview of those, those SEC constraints, right? And so one could imagine an environment in which individual staking is something that's prevalent and done at all levels around the rest of the world. But in the United States, it's kind of this, it's limited to those who can come up with that cash or it is done through these institutionalized models of, of Wall Street, essentially. Yeah, I guess the way I look at it is, and I certainly take your point about regulatory perimeter and geographies and what is the SEC's jurisdiction. Although, again, I would say the SEC seems to have a broader idea about where its it uh, geographic is, yeah. jurisdictional authority begins and ends. Um, that aside, you know, I think it's about what is the activation energy and confidence required in the system to engage in activity that's not just speculative investment. And so staking, what is the purpose mm. of staking? Well, in a proof of stake yeah. environment, staking is pretty damn important. And so what is the motivation? What is the confidence you need to have in the system? You can't dip your toe in if it's $50,000. You're in, I think you're in. Obviously, many folks can, and there's a certain part of the population, to your point, that can do that. But the level of education and confidence understanding you're going to have to have to, Mm. for the entry point to be that versus $1,000 or 100 bucks or whatever it is, right? Where you can just kind of like play around with what is staking? How does it work? I don't really know. I don't get it. Maybe I don't feel comfortable. You can't really do that. And so- to me, it's the ability to be fluid and flexible and to grow and learn in mm. the system by doing that is significantly mitigated, I think, by a, a world in which you're required to spend $50,000. And, and let's not forget, that price is only going to go up because 32 mm. ETH is 32 ETH, right? But currently, $50,000 could be 80, could be 20, to be fair. But, you know, right? Like, mm-hmm. if that's what you have to do and what you have to engage in, it's a pretty high price if you're newer to the ecosystem and trying to learn. So yeah, that's really where point. I have a big issue with it. So I have a big issue with it for that reason. What are the devs saying about this, Margot? Particularly this idea about, yes, coming in, experimenting, playing, learning, which we all say is a critical part of being a crypto participant is to get your feet wet and learn. I think the devs are mostly concerned with like the Ethereum's purpose. So decentralization as much as possible. So yes, come in and yes, we want to onboard as many people. But we want to do it in a way that helps the ecosystem. And so if it means solo staking, then go for it. I mean, and obviously I think they're aware that some people might not be as crypto savvy and that that's why decentralized systems are in place to help you sort of participate in this. But at the end of the day, the devs are really focused and take to heart sort of the goal of Ethereum, which is for it to be as decentralized as possible. The core devs are supportive of things like Lido and, and Rocket Pool. They, they think yeah, good of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. And also and, and to say that Lido, Rocket Pool, th- those are not at risk right now, but there hasn't been any 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 rulings on that yet. So, you know, decentralized protocols are still very much in play here, or is decentralized staking service, I should say, is very much in play here. Okay. All right. Listen, unfortunately, I, I was just getting started there because, I, as I said, I, I got this big meta theory. Again, we have to use this every time now. WWWD. <laughs> pretty proud of it. Yeah. Will Gary Gensler do? You know, I'm seeing these machinations about this world that I, I, I think it's also very interesting to think how Ethereum is or isn't going to interact with, I think it's ultimately going to be a more interactive or in, slightly op, uh, interoperable 
Bitcoin layer with the arrival of ordinals and things like this. And so Bitcoin is the unregulated commodity base layer and all these other things trying to figure out there was a security, whether it truly is decentralized or not. There's this meta story that we'll have to save for another podcast. And maybe we'll get Margot back on to, to dive into that one with us, which I'd, be, I'd love to do. So Margot, uh, Nykirk, thank you so much for taking the time to talk us through this. What is often a very complicated topic, but you've done a really good job of helping, I think, to break it down. And Sheila, thank you, as always, for your insights. Always tremendous. And thank you to all of you listeners. Uh, come back again next week for another edition of Money Reimagined. See you later. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Announcements by Adby Levine and her executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is by Shepard. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. <laughs>